0: Father, we we love you and we thank you, Lord, so much for the season. Um, It kind of helps us um, recalibrate our minds that um, there's so many things to be thankful for. Lord, your grace, your goodness, your bounty, and uh, for family, and uh, Lord, for our church family, and that we can be together. And um, So Lord, thank you for that. Now we do lift up Frank to you, and I don't know all that's going on. haven't heard from the family this morning, but we pray that, um, uh, Lord, you just give strength to Frank's body, whatever's going on. Uh, They are uh, fearful that it may be COVID, and uh, so we just pray that you would uh, heal him and uh, bring him back to us safely. Lord, we pray for Melissa. Um, Yeah, Lord, I I just pray that uh, all things in surgery... Uh, that you would lead the surgeons well and uh, that they could just put her heel back together as it ought to be, as you designed it, and uh, that she would have a full recovery. And um, and Lord, I pray for my bride. Um, uh, It's hard when mom is down. And I pray that she right now, along with Melissa, wouldn't feel the burden of that, being worried about us, uh, but would just rest easy and recover well. And so bring healing to her body, I pray. And Lord, also in regard to our study that we've been doing on the covenants, uh, Lord, the the goal is to understand uh, the covenants so that we might also understand uh, what our obligation is to you. And, uh, And so I just pray that you would release our conscience in regard to things that our hearts might be tied to that you haven't tied them to and that we would be rooted and grounded in the covenant, Lord, that you have uh, placed us in. And, um, so yeah, so Lord. Thank you in Jesus name. Amen. Be, be seated, please. All right, let's try this one more time. I'm going to try that again. All right. Okay. So I put part one up there because, uh, it's probably going to turn into part three or four. And, uh, as I, but I said last week, who's in a hurry, uh, except me this morning. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, are you guys ready? I didn't get any emails. Uh, I got a good question, but it's in uh, probably part two from someone, and uh, so we'll get to that later. But uh, yeah, uh, the questions are good. I'm glad that people ask questions, shows people are thinking, and, uh, and as Robbie Zacharias would say, uh, you know, let my people think. So hey, Joe just texted me. Um, my phone is on because Of Shandy actually that's a long text so um he has uh, Frank has COVID-19 it's confirmed case with um, with some pneumonia so we want to be praying continue praying I am going to respond real quick is that okay okay it's not a habit of mine I'm just we love people amen okay I just did yeah and uh yeah let's let's get going here I'm running out of time and I have 40 slides for you, so it'll be like uh, last week. So, yeah. Um, so last week we looked at a few things concerning, or a number of things concerning the old covenant, and we asked and we answered a number of questions. Uh, you know, what is the old testament or the covenant? And the simple answer is the agreement that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus through Leviticus. Of course, it was repeated again in Deuteronomy. Um, That's the old covenant. Then we asked who are the constituents of the old covenant? It was the children of Israel present at Mount Sinai when God gave the law, okay? And then the other constituents were those that were subsequently born into the covenant, those Jews born after that. And then we asked, is the old covenant a continuation or is it an addition to the Abrahamic covenant? And we answered that, Paul answered that for us out of Galatians chapter three, uh, verses 15 through 70. He says, absolutely not, it can't even be the case. Now we asked, what was the purpose of the law, the old covenant? And in Galatians 3.19, Paul says, it was added because of transgression. The purpose of the law was to make Uh, sin relevant to God, that it's not just a horizontal issue. We don't just sin against one another. We sin against God himself. And then he adds another purpose to the law in in chapter 3, verse 24, that the law was a child custodian, as it were, to lead the sinner to Christ, that he or she might be justified by faith alone. And then we asked when did the old covenant, the law of Moses, when did it expire? In Jeremiah 31, Matthew 26, and many other places, especially Hebrews, teaches that it expired at the cross when Jesus' life expired. Amen? Now, it is the, it's the expiration of the old covenant in its entirety that really troubles people most, but it is what's anticipated in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament literature. And it is the definitive conclusion of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So before we move on, I want to briefly uh, lay that evidence before you again, uh, just in case someone wasn't here for last week's discussion. And uh, I don't want anybody to think that I'm trying to pull a fast one. Uh, It's not my thing to do that. Um, The New Testament authors, they use a number of terms and phrases to describe the termination, the cancellation of the Old Covenant. Here's a sampling of those. There's just a few. I've always wondered how many times does an inspired author by the Holy Spirit need to say it for us to get it? I mean, once should be enough, right? But how many times <laughs> do we have it on the screen? The Old Covenant has been fulfilled, uh, abolished, wiped out, canceled, taken away, annulled, or set aside, and made obsolete. Let me put them in uh, perspective, in their, in their respective verses. Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then what he means by that is what is described throughout the rest of the New Testament. So in Ephesians 2.15, Christ himself abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Colossians 2.14, he, speaking of Jesus, wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Hebrews 7.18, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. If you want the full discussion on Hebrews 7, you'll have to go to our website uh, where I've taught through that section. And then Hebrews eight thirteen. in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Obsolete, okay? Now, depending on the translation you have, uh, some of those terms and phrases will look a little different. Uh, all of the meanings are exactly the same. So if there's one thing that we can know for sure uh, about the old covenant, it is this. It has been canceled. It is no longer in effect. It was fulfilled in its entirety. And as the author of Hebrews says repeatedly, something better has taken its place. And we're the constituents of the better. And that's really nice. Okay. Uh, this was also made abundantly clear by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 15, when all of the apostles in Jerusalem got together uh, to discuss the issue of whether or not Gentiles needed to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. An issue had happened in Antioch when Paul and Barnabas were there. Men from the Jerusalem church, probably uh, disciples of the Pharisees, had come and said, hey, the Gentiles need to be circumcised, And, and Paul and Barnabas weren't going for it. So they traveled to Jerusalem to gather the apostles to address the issue. And when Paul and Barnabas got to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the disciples, but then they were immediately confronted by these Pharisees who had become believers. And this is what they said to clarify the position. They said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So insisting that the Gentiles be circumcised according to the law, and then they had to keep the law. So they get together, the apostles, to consider the matter. And then through the direction of the Holy Spirit, this is what they concluded and wrote in their letter to the Gentile believers. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. So those who were teaching the Gentiles had to be, that they had to be circumcised and keep the law, they weren't commissioned they weren't sent out by the apostles, and neither was their doctrine, their teaching. It was unsanctioned. It, was, uh, it wasn't orthodox. It was heresy, okay? Things that weren't consistent with the gospel and what we would call new covenant faith and practice. They were out of line. And then prior to this conclusion made by the, all of the apostles, Peter makes this interesting statement uh, in their dialogue arguing uh, against that position of the Pharisees. And he said, why do you test God? But by the way, testing God is a violation of the law of Moses. So by telling Gentiles to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses is breaking the law of Moses. Interesting. Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? When you look back on Old Testament Jewish history, How well did the disciples, not the disciples, but the Jews, the children of Israel, bear the law? I mean, one to ten, what's their score? (laughs) Now, the modern legalist says that Peter was referring to circumcision as the unbearable yoke rather than the law of Moses, concluding that Gentiles, you're, you're right, they don't need to be circumcised, but they do need to keep the law of Moses. Well, that overlooks the context, and it misunderstands the very nature of circumcision, and why these Pharisees wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised. The, the point, the purpose of circumcision was to incorporate someone into the covenant, which then obligated them to obey everything stated in the covenant. The two go hand in hand. You cannot separate uh, the covenant or the, the issues of the covenant. Circumcision, law-keeping, they all are really one. And that's why Paul warned The Galatian believers who were considering circumcision, he says this, I testify to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. The modern legalist doesn't understand what Paul understood. They go together, don't they? You get circumcised for religious reasons, by the way. Uh, I think most men in America are still circumcised, especially if they're Christians. Definitely if they're Jews. Uh, But if if you're circumcised for religious purposes specifically, is to be a proselyte of Judaism. Uh, you are then responsible, Paul says, your debtor to keep everything recorded in the law of Moses. So clearly the yoke that Peter was referring to uh, was the law of Moses. The Jews have done just fine circumcising their babies for the last 3,500 years. Okay. Wasn't much of a burden. Uh, well, anyway, poor babies. And then Paul actually concurs with this in Galatians 5.1, and he refers to the law of Moses as a yoke, just like Peter did, a yoke of bondage that should be avoided. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty, the freedom by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And then he makes this statement, I testify again that every man who becomes circumcised, that he is A debtor to keep the whole law. So again, the old covenant, the law of Moses, you guys, it has been canceled in its entirety. So what then? If God has made the old covenant obsolete and it's no longer a legal and binding agreement, what does that mean for us? Are we covenant-less? Now, as we said last week, the Gentiles were never the constituents of the old covenant. Only the children of Israel were. But because of tradition, uh, legalism, and just bad theology in general, uh, many Christians have considered themselves to be under the law and obligated to its demands, just like some of the early Gentiles who had been duped by the Judaizers, as we see in the book of Galatians. But the Gentiles were never the constituents of the covenant, even though many of us, because of various reasons, have felt as though we were Raise your hand, you were a part of a tradition that made you feel obligated to keep at least some of the old covenant. Only a few hands went up, many will go up here in a little bit, I guarantee it, okay? <laughs> okay. So we're going to look at the implications of the law's obsolescence, its cancellation, as if we had been obligated to its precepts like the Jews, where I think at this point it would just be less confusing. So I want to continue with the same format that we had last week. I'm going to a- ask a few questions, and then we'll turn to the Scriptures to answer them. Here they are. What is our relationship to the law of Moses? And what are some practical examples of exemption that many evangelicals uh, do not believe? And what about the elephant in the room? Uh, for you uh, millennials, that's just a figure of speech. Uh, Laughter. I'll clarify that in a minute. (laughs) There's no elephant up anywhere in the room. So what is our relationship uh, to the law of Moses, the old covenant? If God has made it obsolete, if Christ has fulfilled the law in its entirety and canceled it out, what does it mean for us? Let's begin with Paul. Paul, he referred to his own relationship to the law in terms of death, death, saying that he died to the law. To die to something uh, means to end the relationship with that thing. Just like when we die physically, we end our relationship with biological life. The physical body has died and is no longer relevant to this reality. Amen? Unless you know something that I don't. It's done. Okay. We're looking forward to a different reality. And so in a similar fashion, by means of death, Paul, his relationship to the law was terminated. Paul said this of himself. He said, for through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. The the statement literally means that Paul had to end his relationship to the law through death in order to live for God. He had to die to live. Any legal relationship to the law would obstruct, is what he's saying, his relationship with God. Paul had to make a decision. Is it going to be the law? Or is it going to be jesus okay the greek is very very clear in that statement i had to die to the law in order to that i might live for god now the same reality is applied to all of us okay in romans 7 where paul says brethren you also have died to the law through the body of christ talking about our mystical union with christ when we first trusted in him the old man was taken into death with Christ, and that then being planted together with him, we, were, we grew like a plant. We were raised with him to a new kind of life. But we had to die to the law, okay? So then the same as Paul, our relationship to the law was terminated. So what does that mean? Paul concludes by saying that because of death, we are no longer under the law. The word under is referring to dominion and Uh, jurisdiction of law. Paul says this, he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law. And he says, the law has dominion over a man for as long as he lives. But we've what? We've died to the law through the body of Christ, therefore we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. So through death, the believer was placed outside of the law's jurisdiction so that it no longer has dominion over him. We live beyond its jurisdiction, much like we live beyond the jurisdiction of the laws of France. Okay? We are citizens of another nation, just like we are the constituents of another covenant. That illustration will become more clear in probably part two. Okay? So we're not under the law of Moses, and the law of Moses is not over us. Paul uses both prepositions there. Through faith in Christ... We've died to the law, which places us beyond the law's reach. It's not over us. We're not under it. It has no authority over our lives. How so? What are some practical examples of exemption? Now, this is where uh, I'm not going to make you raise your hands, but they're going to be raised internally. Okay? The various answers uh, to this question make a lot of people nervous because of tradition and a host of other Theological presuppositions, but I'm all about challenging uh, religious paradigms and traditions. Um, So take a deep breath. Okay, or not. (laughs) Exemptions, Sabbath keeping, tithing, diets, feasts. Just to list a few. Just to list a few. Now I can't just throw that out there without defending my position lest I get stoned. Uh, That's an old covenant thing, by the way. (laughs) Just saying. We don't have rock parties anymore. The Sabbath. There's so much confusion about the Sabbath. And, and sometimes, well, I don't want to say it. Let's just get into it. First, the Sabbath day cannot be changed. It cannot be changed. God finished creating the universe and everything in it on the sixth day. And which day did he rest? Okay. I don't care who you are. You can't change that reality. So the Sabbath day does not change. It cannot be changed. Okay, And according to the scriptures, the seventh day begins, of course, the Jews are on a lunar calendar, so everything is weird for people in a Western calendar, a solar calendar, but the Sabbath begins Friday night at sundown. As soon as the sun is down, the Sabbath has started, okay? and the Sabbath ends Saturday at sundown, but the Sabbath proper is really Saturday, Okay, Saturday. Now some Christian traditions have said that the Sabbath day was changed to Sunday. Is that possible? No, it's not possible. There's just no biblical evidence for it either. And just because the church gathered on Sunday, that is the first day of the week, does not mean that the Sabbath was changed to Sunday. Now the most obvious reason that the church gathered on Sunday is because Christ rose from the dead on Sunday, okay, the first day of the week, but he didn't change the Sabbath. And also, the idea that the weekly Sabbath is a day of worship is a Jewish tradition. It's not a biblical concept. The Jewish Sabbath was a day of rest. Okay? It's a late Jewish tradition that arrived, well, late, as far as Jewish tradition goes, was prior to the first century A.D. Okay? The weekly Sabbath was a day of rest, not a special day for worship. Okay? The Sunday gathering was an apostolic tradition Okay, for the apostles' teaching and doctrine. That's why the church got together. And they were excited to do it, by the way. They were risking their lives uh, to do it. And it was for fellowship and communion and prayer and worship. And that's what we believe that we should accomplish, uh, not just on Sunday mornings, by the way, but it should at least be accomplished here okay, among us. And what is interesting is gathering on Sunday is never a command per se isn't that interesting okay and it's not a command because those that have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb those who have the holy spirit residing in them have no need to be commanded to do so read the the epistles of john okay yeah being with the church for god's purpose is something that we're internally driven to do now be that as it may what is our relationship to the sabbath first there is no command in the new testament to keep the Sabbath day. Christians are never instructed to keep Sabbath. You can look, but you will be wasting your time. Okay, not there, not there. But let's look at some New Testament evidence in regards to our relationship to it. Let's do it in, some, in chronology. Uh, Romans 14, is the first time that the, the issue arises, um, and this is what Paul says about a dispute. Yes, the early church disputed about things all the time. Because whenever you take Jews and Gentiles and throw them into the same context, you have problems. Okay? And then when you take Jews who think they're believers with all of their Old Covenant stuff and you infiltrate the church with them, you have disputes. And then whenever you put humans together, what do you have? You have disputes. So people that say, well, we just need to go back to the early church uh, and what they did and how they were... Uh, It just shows a great deal of ignorance about church history. The church has been fighting for 2,000 years. Okay, I've, I've read church history multiple times. I've read my New Testament enough. Didn't Paul and Barnabas have an argument? It was over people, of all things. Anyway, that's for another time. Romans 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. That last... Sentence is extremely important. The implications of it in regard to a command, yeah. So the Jews, of course, esteemed the Sabbath day above all other days, right? Mind you, that was one of the capital crimes for which they accused Jesus, was for breaking the Sabbath, according to their tradition, okay? Yeah, that was the Jews' day, and no one is going to tell them otherwise until the Holy Spirit released their conscience, But the Gentiles had no such weekly holy day to cling to or to elevate above all other days, so it just wasn't an issue for them. But the Jews, as was typical for them, as we read in the New Testament, they were probably looking down on the Gentiles for their lack of religious affiliation to a specific day, which was, of course, causing problems in the fellowship. People do not like to be condescended, okay? Well, the thing is, in the New Covenant, there's no special day that is elevated like there was in Judaism. And so Paul says, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. That is, decide for yourself, but keep it to yourself. If you read the rest of Romans 14, uh, that's Paul's point. You may have a personal uh, perspective on something that has no biblical grounding. You may have a conviction on something that has no biblical precedence. If you have that, keep it to yourself. Don't impose it on others. People do not criticize or look down on others for what is important to you. So Paul really reduces the special day thing to that of a personal preference, okay? It's not right or wrong. It's just what an individual may prefer, and anyone's preference is as good as anyone else's. You know, my children argue over which flavor of ice cream is the best. I still get into debates like that. But at the end of the day, it boils down to personal preference, doesn't it? It does. It's not a moral decision. It's just a preference. So let every child be convinced in his own mind. It's a good illustration because typically we argue like children, right? Like children. Stop thinking that your preference exceeds everyone else's and just let everyone enjoy their ice cream. (laughs) Same is true for the Sabbath or any other day that someone might elevate or impose on others. Each can be convinced fully in their own mind. Now, the issue comes up again in Galatians. Uh, The Galatian believers, as we know, had been duped by the Judaizers who convinced the the Galatians they needed to start keeping the Jewish Sabbath and all the other things related to the Jewish calendar. Now, if you're not familiar with the Jewish calendar, it was just cram-packed with a variety of different things according to various moons, like the harvest moon. Okay, So Paul says, you... He's saying that because of the Judaizers, you have started observing days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Okay, So just by these Gentile believers entertaining the Jewish calendar, Paul was afraid that all of his energy there in that region discipling, And teaching and ministering to them was going to waste just by them keeping the Jewish calendar. Now, nothing in the Jewish calendar is a part of the new covenant. And so therefore, it wasn't a part of Paul's instruction. It was was nothing but a perversion of the gospel, introducing things that Jesus never intended in the new covenant. Now, Paul addresses the issue of the Sabbath more directly in Colossians 2. Now, it was in Colossians 2 verse 14 that I had on the screen earlier, where Paul said that Christ has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then he clarifies what those uh, commandments were that were against us. And he says, so then let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. So among other Jewish things, Paul says, let no one judge you according to Sabbaths. Now the NASB and the NIV say a Sabbath day. That's how they translate that. Now the thought is the same, but the plural is more inclusive because there were other Sabbath days mentioned in the law of Moses surrounding all of the feasts. And so by the use of the plural, Paul includes every Sabbath day mentioned in the law of Moses. So because all of these things were wiped out and taken out of the way and nailed to the cross, as Paul says, he says, let no one judge you for not holding to them, for not observing them as a covenant obligation. Okay. They were made obsolete with the rest of the old covenant. So what is the New covenant believers' relationship to the Sabbath? There is none. There is no relationship, okay? None. It's not a new covenant thing. Nothing to do with the Christian faith. No obligation. Zero. I don't know how I can say that any other way. According to the new covenant, we rest in Christ. We rest in Christ, Hebrews chapter four, who has finished the work for us. Now, of course, course I encourage people to rest, and get away from your routine, because resting is a wise thing to do, but a specific day uh, is not recorded for us. It's not, we might say, a part of the terms and conditions of the new covenant, okay? Let's move on. What about tithing? <clears throat> tithing. I won't show, make a show of hands for that. Another issue that many have traditional ties to is that of tithing, but Again, there's no New Testament instruction regarding it. There's plenty of encouragement to give and to be generous, but no set amount, because a tithe means a tenth, a tenth percent. Okay. Now, some say, and have said it to me, that whatever is not mentioned in the New Testament has already been commanded in the Old Covenant, and therefore we should tithe or do whatever else is commanded there. Now, that's a catchy statement that has no biblical grounds. Okay, zero. The the bulk of New Testament giving is related to a few things: supporting missions, supporting ministers, and uh, Christians in financial need. But there's nothing about tithing. Rather, the spirit of giving and generosity is expressed in Corinthians, which makes tithing irrelevant. Irrelevant. Okay. And besides, you know, what if a tithe is too little or too much? Would a pastor dare say that a tithe is too little? <laughs> What if you're motivated by the Holy Spirit to give more or to just front the whole bill or just participate with everyone corporately? What if you absolutely cannot afford a tithe at this particular time in life? We've had people bounce their giving checks because they don't really have anything. Please don't do that. Okay. Now, I have counseled, especially single mothers who are loaded down with medical bills and other things, they cannot give a 10% of their income at this time in life. Now, the law would command me to command them, and if they didn't, the law would demand discipline. I have no authority to discipline in that context. Okay, I have counseled single women not to give, Okay, single mothers, because they just couldn't afford it, and it would be unwise to do it. And I know all of the 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 people that are so filled with so much faith would say they just need to give by faith. Well, of course you need to give by faith, but giving by faith does not mean violating what you actually have. Okay? I'll talk about that in just a second. Okay. What if you cannot afford and what if the Holy Spirit moves you to give a tenth? Fine. Okay. The New Testament rule for giving and generosity is stated this way: He who now mind that this isn't a command, this is a statement of fact, not a command. He who sows sparingly will will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his own heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, that is, you know, feeling like they have to, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, when Paul says, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, is a lot like saying, let each person decide for himself. Okay? As he said concerning the Sabbath day. Now, both of those statements preclude any concept of a set requirement. They're not compatible. If the law, if, if the covenant says 10%, you don't get to decide for yourself. You can't purpose in your own heart. No, it's 10%. Give it or suffer the consequences. It's not the new covenant, is it? It's very, very different. Just as there is no requirement for a day in the new covenant, there's no set amount for giving. We must all purpose in our hearts, and here it is, as we're led by the Holy Spirit. So when you hear uh, preachers talk about robbing God from Malachi chapter 3 in order to compel you to give your tithe or to give more generously, tell them to fly a kite. Tell them to learn how to keep the Bible in context, okay? In Malachi 3, God is talking to Jews who were still under the old covenant where tithing was not an option. It was required, but it has no application in the new covenant. Besides, most preachers uh, that quote those passages are trying to manipulate people, okay? To giving more, which is contrary to the spirit of giving in 2 Corinthians 9. It's also contrary to the heart of God. I personally believe that it's immoral to manipulate people, okay? Now, here at Calvary Chapel, we don't even pass a plate uh, because of how it can sometimes make people feel obligated to give, and then they give with the wrong heart, okay? It's our conviction to place what we call the agape boxes around the auditorium, okay? So that people can give as they're led through prayer, through compassion, or just out of a sense of generosity. That's what we do, okay? I don't, if people want to pass a plate at their church, I'm not going to, I have no judgment about that. I have a personal conviction, and the elders have it, and we keep it to ourselves. I mean, other than sharing with you what we do. Uh, if, if you want a, a plate-passing church, maybe we'll just take a plate and flip it upside down and pass it around for you. I don't know what we'll do, but we just don't do that here, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so if that happens, don't flip it the other way, okay? Yeah. So you're never going to hear me teach tithing as a new covenant requirement. I encourage giving. I, I encourage generosity for the things listed in the new covenant, but never... A tithe. Okay, now this does not preclude using a tithe as a guide to help balance your budget. Just be careful that it doesn't dictate how much or how little you give. Okay? Okay, my conviction about all of this is that, uh, that I should continue to seek the Lord about giving and to be sure to make it a spiritual discipline of worship and devotion to the things that God loves and values. I want the heart of God when it comes to my giving. Yeah, we don't want to reduce it to something that is marked off each month on our checklist of religious duties. Make sure, I would say, that your heart and your faith participate in the act of worship, the act of worship. You know, trust God to use your giving to advance the gospel, no matter how much or how little, that it would advance the preaching of the word. Trust that he will use it to provide For the needs of others and be a blessing to them so by applying your faith to your giving i don't mean write a check with for for money you don't have that's not faith giving that's called being irresponsible and then it's embarrassing because then i have to tell you that thanks for nothing (laughs) it's just awkward okay we should be responsible Uh, if you look through your bible there's all kinds of discussions about being responsible with your money. So faith-giving is not giving what you don't have. Faith-giving is trusting that God will be pleased with it and that he'll use it to advance the things he loves. That's faith-giving. Okay, yeah. Don't do it out of obligation. Do it out of a devotion to the things of God. Let's move on. Before I run out of time. Diets. There are various traditions that believe that Christians must abstain from various foods like pork and shellfish because they're forbidden in the old covenant. Okay? Uh, some traditions even strongly suggest a vegetarian diet, but the New Testament doesn't forbid the eating of any foods and it doesn't prescribe a particular diet. It's actually the opposite. For example, in Acts 10, uh, the story of Peter at Simon's house and then on over to Cornelius' house, who was a Gentile, by the way. Peter is there on the roof. He's having this vision from Christ who showed Peter all kinds of unclean foods. That's foods that were forbidden uh, for the Jews to eat in the Old Covenant. And in the vision, after all these foods had been shown to Peter, the Lord, it's crazy, the Lord says rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so much for your lordship Jesus. And Peter says, "I have never eaten anything that is unclean or common." Okay. To which Jesus responded and said, "What God has cleansed, you must not call common." This happens 3 times, okay? And then Peter wakes up, there's a knock on the door, and he ends up at Cornelius's house, okay? And the implication over in Acts chapter 11 verse 3, is that Peter ate Gentile food with Gentiles, that is, food that is forbidden in the law. Stories recorded in Acts 10 and 11 uh, for your further study. Then later, as we've already covered in Galatians chapter 2, we have this awkward situation between Paul and Peter. Peter is being a hypocrite because while in Antioch, He initially ate with the Gentiles, eating Gentile food. But then some Jews came up from Jerusalem. He abandons the Gentiles and he only eats with the Jews and Jewish food. And he initially communicated by his actions that it was okay for Jews to eat Gentile food, which it is, which it is. And then later his actions communicated that Gentiles must only eat Jewish food, which they do not. For his actions, Paul calls him a hypocrite. And he says, you're not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. That is new covenant, faith, and practice. Compelling Gentiles to live like Jews in regard to their diet is wrong. It's it's immoral, Paul is saying. It's immoral. Quiet. Let me reemphasize that. It is immoral. It's immoral. It's hypocrisy. It's it's anti-truth. It's not consistent with the covenant that Jesus established. Okay. That's all found in Galatians 2. You can study that further as well. Finally, Paul just comes out and says it when instructing the young pastor, Timothy. Okay? 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines, that's teachings, of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now that sounds spooky. What are these doctrines of demons, Paul, and what lies will they teach? Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now we can talk about the forbidding to marry thing another time. We're concerned about the food thing. One of these doctrines of demons... That should alarm anyone. A doctrine of demons is to command people to abstain from foods. In other words, they're teaching that it's immoral to eat certain kinds of foods. Of course, we're talking about certain kinds of foods because if you abstain from all kinds of foods, well, last time I checked, you'll die, okay? Now, I don't care who it is or what religious organization is saying it. If they are telling people to avoid certain foods, they are promoting a doctrine of demons. Does that make anybody uncomfortable? Because the reality is we should affirm what God has affirmed in his word. We must, okay? Those persons and those organizations belong to a false religion at worst, or they're promoting a false doctrine at best, but all of it's bad. So whatever you do, do not listen to them. You will be living contrary to the word of God okay? Paul says that those who believe and know the truth enjoy all foods. Now, it has to be said, if you have dietary restrictions because of an illness or an allergy, you should probably avoid the foods that are inflammatory, okay? Or at least practice some moderation. Now, there are certain kinds of diseases or deficiencies where a particular kind of food will kill a person, okay? For that reason, and not for religious reasons, those persons should abstain from those foods. I have a dear friend who will die if he consumes just a small amount of a certain category of foods. And he doesn't abstain from those foods for a covenant reason, okay? His life actually depends on it. Paul continues, he says, for every creature, okay, the word every in Greek, guess what it means, every, okay? Creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, For, or because, it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. You guys, Paul could not say that if we were still under the old covenant or subject to some dietary law. So as far as the new covenant is concerned, all foods are acceptable when it's received with thanksgiving and prayer. And that goes for pork and to every other blessed pork product. (laughs) And everything that comes out of the sea whether it has a shell or not. Now, because I personally cannot give thanks for Brussels sprouts, I will avoid them altogether. Okay, there's, there's nothing to prove they can't kill you, so it's just safer to abstain. <laughs> I think that you guys are getting the point. We need to hurry here, though. Next question. The Feasts of the Lord. Should Christians keep the feast of the Lord? Okay, the Feasts of the Lord were related to the various harvests, and they were memorials regarding the things that God did for Israel in the past, and of course, for his own glory. And a number of the feasts are bunched together at different times of the year. Uh, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're celebrated in the early spring during the barley harvest, March or April, okay, commemorating, you know, Israel's uh, deliverance, rapid deliverance from Egypt, and the sparing of the firstborn males. The Feast of Pentecost was celebrated 50 days later during the wheat harvest, May, June, and then the Feast of Trumpets, and then, but Tabernacles specifically, and then Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they were celebrated in the fall, okay, September, October. Now Tabernacles, while remembering God's faithfulness during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, also celebrates God's faithfulness for the harvest throughout the year. Okay? So should we be celebrating these feasts. Again, we're not commanded anywhere in the new covenant to keep them. Okay? No apostle directs us that way. In fact, as we saw earlier, it concerned Paul deeply. He said, I am afraid for you, you remember. And then he told the, Gal- the Colossians not to let anyone judge them for not keeping the feasts. Here are the verses to the Galatians. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored in vain. Now the seasons are a reference to the various feasts of the Lord that took place in spring, early summer, and fall, all prescribed in the law of Moses. The participation of new covenant believers in those things concerned Paul deeply. Again, he was afraid that all of his work among them in new covenant instruction would go to waste if they continued in them. And then Paul told the Colossians that Christ, remember, he took away the law, he nailed it to the cross, and so he says, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival. Again, food is in that one as well, but here it's a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are shadows of things to come, but the substance of uh, the substance is Christ. We're not obligated to them because they were confined to the old covenant, okay? and because Christ fulfilled them. Paul says they were a mere shadow, but Christ is the substance, meaning the reality. In a similar fashion, when you stand out in the sunshine, your body casts a shadow. That shadow is not you. You are you. The shadows, the festivals, are not Christ. They just look forward to Christ. Okay? They point to him. As I said last week, or a few weeks ago, rather, the Jews keep the feasts, continue to keep the feasts because they've rejected Christ and they keep them as an anticipation of him coming. Not his second coming, but his first coming. So they keep them because they've rejected him, because they looked forward, and that's all they did. Never intended to look back. So when we, if someone celebrates the feasts today, apart from religious purposes, it, it makes me concerned, like Paul. Okay? It's missing the point of the feasts. There's a danger in celebrating them. Now, I've known Christians to get caught up into the feasts and it's not long before they feel obligated to keep them. And then they start trying to get other Christians to keep them. And when those other Christians don't keep them, they start to look down on them. And they build kind of a, a superiority complex, like they're a step-up Christian. And those that don't keep the feasts are a step down. Okay? I will do the feasts as an educational thing, but I won't keep the feasts ever. Okay? Christ has come. He's fulfilled them. I have the reality I don't need the shadow. Okay. So there you have the, the biggies that people get confused about. Okay. So according to the New Testament, Christians have no obligation to keep Sabbath, tithe, have a religious diet, or keep the feasts. Okay. But there's this big elephant in the room known as the Ten Commandments. What do we do with them? <laughs> now, we demonstrated last week that the Old Covenant is... The Ten Commandments. Moses wrote, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So Moses was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the covenant, which the New Testament says is fulfilled, abolished, wiped out or canceled, taken away, an older set aside, obsolete. Now, if that is true, and it most certainly is, does it mean that we have, or can have rather, other gods than the God of the Bible? That we can bow down to idols or that we can use the Lord's name in vain? But we have already demonstrated that we don't keep Sabbath, okay? But does it mean that we can dishonor our parents or, or murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness against our neighbor, and covet what shouldn't belong to us? Those are great questions that that we'll answer next week. (laughs) Until then, just to be safe, don't kill anyone. Okay? Real quick, in review. The old covenant has been canceled. We died to the law. We're not under the law, and the law has no dominion over us, and so we have no obligation to its precepts and regulations, and I mean none. I mean none, okay. But the elephant in the room cannot be ignored for more than another week. So we will talk about that then, and we're gonna look at what it means, Now I don't wanna share that with you, because that's for next week, okay. Now again, uh, I'm willing to talk about any of these things with any of you, okay? Um, you can email me, we can chat after service, coffee, whatever. Uh, I'm always ready for discussion, I love it when people think. And um, so let's pray because the kids need to get out of children's church. So would you please stand? You guys are good sports, putting up with me like this. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you. And we're so thankful, Lord, that you established a new covenant that is based upon things that are so much better and Lord, as your new covenant people, we want to understand those things better because it's important that we live according to the things that you have instructed us by because we want to glorify you. We want to be devoted to you. And we, won't want, we don't want to follow a set of rules, as it were, if you're not asking us to. We want it to be devoted to you. And so Lord, continue through this process to teach us and to encourage our hearts, Lord. I thank you for my church family. I pray that you would grant them grace. Lord, they might, as Peter says, grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. Encourage their hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.